Okay, with that, let's pray. And we are, we are in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27. Uh, we are continuing along through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, um, these are probably some of the most difficult verses in the Bible, uh, not to understand, but to apply. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you uh, specifically uh, for this, this account of Matthew. Lord, this tax collector who uh, was really an outcast in his society and his culture was hated by many. And Lord, that he responded uh, to your call, follow me. And Lord, I thank you for uh, your work of redemption in his life. I thank you for uh, the work that your spirit did through him. I thank you for um, giving him this eyewitness account and that through your spirit, uh, he penned these words um, so that we uh, would know uh, what Christ said during his life. Uh, Father, we do ask uh, that as we study these words, Lord, that your spirit would help us to understand what they say, Lord, that you would, um, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, there are many here and we are in different places in our lives and walks with you. And so, Father, I pray um, that these words of Christ uh, would hit us where we need to be hit. Uh, I pray that you would help us um, to focus on these words, that you would help us to uh, consider what Christ said, and Lord, ultimately, that we, um, we would reach the place in our lives where we truly could surrender all to you, um, knowing, Lord, that, uh, that you really are the answer. You are you are the ultimate good. You are God. Uh, you know what's best for us. And so, Lord, we, um, we confess that so often we believe that we know what's best for us. And so, Lord, we need your help in our lives. We need your spirit to guide us. We need you uh, to transform us, Lord, from the inside out. And so we love you. Uh, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you'd help us now as we study this passage. Uh, Lord, may you be honored and glorified uh, through this time of worshiping you through the studying of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Uh, so today's passage, this is, um, I mean, you just heard it read. This is one of those difficult passages. And, and the reason it's so difficult is that um, Jesus puts some demands here. He, 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 
he sort of raises the bar. I don't know if raising the bar or he, he puts some barriers in front of his followers. Um, maybe a, like, like a sobering reality that stands before them. Uh, on one hand, I mean, for, for a lot of it, I was sort of just planning on handling this passage um, in conjunction with, with last week's passage and just sort of um, flying over it. But then as you know, Easter approached, I think even last week, kind of getting ready for, um, for Easter, um, while I was in Israel sort of pondering this passage, I really decided to, to kind of break it up into two parts um, because I think that the gospel is at stake here. Like our, our understanding of what Christ is offering and what he's asking of us is, is, is critical. And I understand that, um, that, that all of us in this room were in different places. And so, so there, it's okay to be at different stages in our, our walk and our commitment with Christ. Um, as a pastor, um, some of the things I really enjoy doing, um, uh, weddings are always like a treat. Like it's, it's fun. They're, I mean, funerals are meaningful and, and they're special. But there's kind of just something about weddings. And I wish that God would give me more weddings than funerals, but he's kind of given me the ministry of funerals in a lot of ways. And, and uh, w- w- weddings are just a lot of fun. And over the years, as I've started done weddings, and especially, you know, people that get together, there's a line that I've incorporated uh, in every wedding. It's, it's, you know, the saying that love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. And so, so, so there's... So there's like these young couples, they come together, they make vows, they have absolutely zero clue what they're getting themselves into. They, there's just, there's no way. On one hand, you feel like you were like, you guys don't, you don't even know what you're getting into. It's biblical. Peter says in his word that, that, oh, I wish everybody could be single. Paul said it. I wish everybody could be single because a married man has lots of troubles in his life. Like, like he kind of like... And so, so weddings are fun, but there's something even about like the times when I've been able to, to, to renew vows. Uh, like I know Joel and Judy, I don't even know how many years have you guys been married now? Like where? So they've been married 30 years. So seven years ago at their 25th wedding anniversary, we renewed their vows. Now it's a totally different thing for two people to stand there who have been married for 25 years and then to recommit themselves to one another eyes wide open. And I think that our relationship with God is that way. Like, I, I, you know, we, we, we make a commitment to him. We decide to follow Christ. We really have no clue what we're doing. Like we, you know, like I didn't. And then as I move along, God begins to open up more. So for some of us, today's passage might be like, hey, it might be time for you to make some vows with God to kind of like recognize what you're, you need to do to get your life right with God. Uh, for, for others of us, we might have been walking with him for a long time, but we sort of on our own terms and our own ways, and, and maybe we need to sort of have our like, you know, five-year commitment to the, like, like where we re-renew our vows and understand. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years, but I, I don't think that there's ever a time in this life when sort of pausing and sort of recommitting ourselves and, and recognizing what the Lord has called us to, uh, it's, it, it, it's a good thing. And so this passage is challenging. This passage is extru- ex- exceptionally uh, challenging in the sense that it sort of 
it goes against our culture. Like last week we had Easter. We, we as Christians, we want people to come to know Jesus as Savior. We want lives to be transformed. And so sometimes the way we present Christ, we, we, we want people to be happy. We want people to, um, to do well in life, to, to be good with God. And, and so we feel that we have more wisdom than God. And so then we begin to sort of adjust the gospel so that we present it in a way as a means to the end of sort of joy and happiness. And, that, and, and, and what I've seen from Christ is he really sort of places these sort of these, these barriers, these challenges, uh, forcing his disciples to truly count the cost and understand uh, what it means to follow him. And so we find ourselves uh, really in this, this, this passage that started back in verse 13 that goes all the way to verse 28. I read verse 28 today, but I'm not going to re- cover it because it really is sort of an introduction to the next section. And so uh, where we find ourselves in context on this map behind me, uh, the Sea of Galilee is here, 27 miles north. There's this place, Caesarea Philippi, uh, a beautiful, beautiful location it's one of the three uh, sp- natural springs that, that feeds into the, um, into the Sea of Galilee, ultimately provides life to all of Israel through the water. Um, during Jesus' time today, it's like a historical site. You can go there and you can see all the etchings in the wall. But during Jesus' time, when he's there, this is sort of the, 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 the pagan headquarters. This is where demonic worship uh, was at, at the forefront and so Jesus is using this location um, as, a, as a, a sort of a place to help them kind of try to open up their minds to see the bigger picture of what's happening. And in verses 13 through 20, and not to redo that sermon or to go all the way back, Jesus begins sharing with his disciples, challenging with his disciples, questioning his disciples, sort of drawing out from them uh, who he is. He asks, who do people say that I am? They give all of these different answers. Then he sort of nails it down. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And then it comes out that you're the, you're the Christ, you're the, the Messiah. And Jesus says, you, you have that right. It's correct. He says, don't say this to anybody. And, and then from there, he transitions in verses 21 to 23. And we read that uh, from that time, there's a shift in the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew where, where Matthew um, shares with us that Jesus' the, the whole emphasis of his teaching is, is, has adjusted. If we were to go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to teach of the kingdom of God, pro- proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. Now we get to chapter 16, verse 20, and everything begins to shift. And, and the shift, the focus, seems to be towards his disciples, helping them to understand the gospel. That he must go to Jerusalem, that he must be crucified according to the scriptures, that he must give his life as a sacrifice uh, for our iniquities so that payment could be made so that ultimately we could have a relationship with God. But when he says this and he speaks of his death, burial, and resurrection, it was more than the disciples could handle. It's not just, it's so easy to sort of uh, isolate Peter. Peter was just sort of the spokesman. They, they, They all would have had a hard time with this teaching. But Peter's just the one who spoke up. Peter just happens to be the one that we have for, for, his, for all of the thousands of years so far uh, as recorded of his 
sort of he went from nailing who Jesus was, that he's the Christ, to then saying, Lord, may this never be. You can't do this. You can't be killed. And Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. Like, it has to be this way. And, and here, like, they're poor brains. Like, how, they, he just revealed to, to them that he's the Messiah. And so the Messiah who's to, to reign and to rule and to, how does that fit with the suffering servant of, of the Messiah that would give his life? That he would be crucified in this shameful, terrible way. And so we come into the third part as, as, as Jesus last week, this is all just one setting. He's gone from sharing with them that he's the Messiah to then explaining to them that as the Messiah, he has to go, as Isaiah 53 states, that he had to go um, to, to make this sacrifice ultimately for his creation, those uh, so that we could be made right with God. And, and then he continues here, and he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. I'm sorry. To, to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Um, th- these are some difficult words that he, he said, now, we can't take this out of context. Jesus has just said, I'm going to the cross. This is the direction that I'm going. And if you desire to follow me, where am I going? Where is he going? He's heading to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He's leading the way. He's leading by example. I came from a culture where, different from the other military, like most military branches, they have officers, and the officers sort of dictate to the enlisted swine. Um, I was enlisted swine, so hey, you go do this, fight the battles, and I'll be back here by death, staying safe. But I came from a culture in the teams where our officers led from the front, that they were the first ones in the door, they were, they, that we were following them. And so here Christ is saying, I'm going to do this, and if you want to follow after me, this is the path. And I think that the idea of us picking up our crosses, it, it's hard for our culture because we think that we're so wonderful, Right? Like, God should just pardon us. Like, like, I'm, like, the world revolves around me, as far as I'm concerned, because that's how my eyes see everything. And so I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I'm pretty, like, I'm, like, the most awesome person I know. Like, I know how to eat food the right way. Like, you guys all like it bland. I, like, make it perfect so that it tastes just right. And we, we tend to see the world as it revolves around us. But Jesus is beginning this, hey, the world doesn't revolve around you. Your sin is actually pretty bad. Like, it's easy to justify your own sin, but you need to understand how foul your sin is. And so he starts applying pressure. And it, 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 it's, it, it's difficult. And I think a lot of churches have a hard time presenting the gospel with the clarity and with the words that Jesus used because these words are difficult that I'd rather present the gospel to you sugar-coated and an easy pill to swallow. That it's sugar and spice and everything nice. And guys, if you just trust in Jesus, everything's going to go great for you. Well, tell that to a person in a Muslim family in the Middle East, that if you give your life to Christ, do you think everything's going to get better for you in this life? Maybe not. Probably not. Eternity-wise, yes. Soul-wise, Yes. I think there's something 
to, to Jesus really laying out the facts to his followers um, so that they would have the information to, to go on, that they would understand correctly. And these men, all of them, would give their lives for Christ, except for Judas, who probably at the time of hearing this is already scheming in his brain how he can run off with the money and betray Jesus. Okay, so some observations. The, the, the first thing I want to observe about verse 24 He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, it may be obvious, (laughs) but there's clearly like a choice here. Jesus is not forcing himself on anybody. The gospel is not forced upon anybody. Somewhere between the sovereignty of God where God moves and from our, like as we see life, we have things to respond to. Um. I believe that as we respond, we grow, we mature, God begins to convict us. So I don't think that we respond to Jesus as like 100% um, like perfect, super duper Christian that you got everything figured out, like that you, you believe in Christ and then suddenly you have the wisdom of a, of a 90-year-old person that's been walking with the Lord for 60 years. It doesn't happen like that. It's this process. I have some notes, and I always see my notes, and I always crack up because Rick laughs at me every Sunday because every time, like, and he's been sitting back there the last two weeks, so I write down, and he starts laughing. He's like, dude, if you don't have it by now, you're toast. <laughs> and and my, <laughs> my notes are a little bit sloppy right now. Um, and so when I look at this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And I think of where I am now compared to 20 years ago when I initially made the decision to follow Jesus. Like, I'm still being convicted in the same matter. I'm still wrestling through things in my own life. But I'm wrestling through different things today than I was then. Um, and, and so there's this, this journey. So I'm, I'm okay with sort of presenting the gospel like an in increment. I don't know if that, that kind of sounds wrong. But as we're sharing the gospel with people, like, I think it's, it's okay for us to sort of gather bits of information sort of bit by bit and sort of respond to what we have, then God gives you a little bit more. Um, certainly when I got married, it wasn't like I met Anna and there was a gun to my head and said, either you got to commit now and marry her or you're going to get shot or go to hell. Sometimes we present Christ that way. And I, I think that there's like, hey, no, I'm like, there was a courting process, the getting to know her, um, researching her, investigating, and she probably should have done a better job on me because she, you know, like, <laughs> I, uh, um, you guys laughed way too hard on that one. <laughs> um, where was I? I'm terribly offended. Uh, no, I'm not. I just, it's true. It, it really is true. But I'm thankful for God's grace and how he has, he allows us to sort of he introduces himself to us. He shows us his faithfulness. He shows us his grace so that we respond. And then as we get to know him and, and, and really, um, you know, it's like a married couple that, that you have your initial vows. But then 20 years later, when you sort of renew your vows, if you renew your vows, there's sort of like this, when you make those commitments then, there's so much more depth and, and strength. And I think that God sort of works this way in us. Um, not saying that salvation comes in bits and pieces. Like once you, it's, a, it's a choice we make. Um, <clears throat> and he works with us. 
okay, it's a choice. Anyone wishes to come after me. So he says, hey, if you guys desire to fall after me, there's some conditions. He says, first, uh, to deny self, and then the second thing is to take up your cross. I'm going to take these two um, individually, <clears throat> but Jesus says three things, and I don't know that I've fully, um, I've, there's an idea tinkering around in my head, and it hasn't settled, and I don't even know if it's anything, but there's deny self, there's taking up your cross, and then there's following me. Those are the three things. Um, for, for those of you that care about grammar and, and sort of the intricacies of the, the Greek language as things are presented, um, it, it's interesting that these three things are sort of presented in different tenses. The first two are presented in an errorist uh, imperative, which sort of means it's a simple action. It's sort of like this one-time sort of, the, the, the one-time sort of implication sort of with lasting results in some way or, or, or a command for like a simple action in contrast with, with a, um, a present imperative, meaning that it's sort of like this command to continually repeat it. And, and you can't take this too, too far. Um, following Jesus is sort of the, the present imperative, sort of it's this idea of, like if you're going to follow him, it's like this is like you got a daily, it's, it's a, this continual thing. Um, there's something about the denying self and taking up cross, and I can only go so far because there's other passages where Jesus says, hey, pick up your cross daily and follow me. <clears throat> but for the two or two, maybe one of you that cares about that, you can research that and maybe uh, tinker with it some. Um, but he says the first thing, you have to deny yourself. And <clears throat> this isn't sort of the idea of, denying myself of like, well, I really like Peterson's donuts. And so I'm going to deny myself donuts for six days a week, and then on one day I'm going to have the cheat day, or whatever it is that we're like limiting things to ourself. That, that's not the implication here. The idea is that you are denying you. <laughs> like you're no longer numero uno in this world. Like, you recognize that it's about him, and you're, sec you're not even, I don't even know if we're second, whatever, like, well, the Bible doesn't really place first and seconds. It's just like, it's no longer about me, it's about him. <clears throat> the, the self is no longer the priority for basing decisions. It's no longer about me, it's about God. God, what is your will in my life? God, what is your desire in this decision and how I live, how I'm my married life, how I'm with my children, how am I with my place of employment, how am I with my neighbors, how am I in all of these areas, what do you want of me? And remember, what is the last thing in the same context, what Jesus said to Peter, he said, you don't have God's interest in mind, you have man's interest in mind. So I think there's this, this it's no longer about you, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, it's no longer about you which totally cuts against the American dream, which is really difficult for us. That's just me kind of, that's just free of charge. That was me kind of struggling with that. It's hard. Like this whole concept. And I don't think it's something we get overnight. This is like a, a lifetime. <clears throat> he, he goes on to say, take up your cross. And we think back, like, well, for us, like, the cross, I think of a cross, like, I'm not even going to look around, I can't really see right now, there's too much going on in my brain to look around and focus on what I'm seeing. But I'm pretty sure there's people in this room that have crosses as jewelry, that we, our houses are decorated with, with crosses. It's, it's become this sort of, and maybe, I don't want to say, 
For some, it might be a good luck charm. There's definitely some in our culture who have taken the cross and it's a good luck charm. Um, it, it's, it's not an offensive thing. This is a repeated lesson. This clearly is important to Jesus. If we were to go backwards to Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 and 39, those two verses are almost identical to what he repeats here at Caesarea Philippi. So this whole idea of denying yourself, taking up your cross, following after him, this mattered to Jesus. Now the cross, what was the cross to them? See, during that time, if you went to Jerusalem, you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to all the jewelry shops. There's like beautiful crosses that you can buy from like big wood ones for your church to, uh, to your house to necklaces to all. There. I mean, you want, a, you want a Catholic version with Jesus on it. You want a Protestant one without Jesus. Eh, it's all up for the grabs. You could spend from, uh, you know, 50 cents on a cross to like $10,000 on some of their crosses. It's beautiful artwork. But during the time that Jesus spoke this, I don't think he'd find any crosses for sale in jewelry shops. <clears throat> and I'm trying to, in my mind, like, what, like what, what's, what's the best picture that we have? Some have said a, an electric chair, but really, I don't like, I, I think I've watched a couple of movies, like, where there's an electric chair. It doesn't really bring out any sort of like revulsion in me. It doesn't like, um, but this, like the cross was the most horrible form of execution. It was reserved only for men. It, it served as the purpose to let the people know that Rome was in, in authority. Uh, picking up your cross and carrying it, that was part of the punishment. It wasn't just like for the convenience of the soldiers, like you carrying the cross beam to your place of execution, it was a way of, of what you were saying, what Rome said that it was saying, is that you were subjecting yourself to Rome's authority, and you were saying Rome is right, and I am subjected to their decision, and by carrying my cross, I am consenting to the claims that Rome is making about me. They were often stripped naked in a public place, for a slow, miserable death. And the closest thing I can think of to me in our culture today, the thing that makes me sickest that just kind of like, like seriously, I don't even know how I would handle it, is those orange jumpsuits. A year ago, those Coptic Christians, however many of them, filed out on the beach in their orange jumpsuits to have their heads chopped off and recorded. So now I see any video with an orange jumpsuit in ISIS, it's like those are dead men walking. Like, it's like there's no way out. And so I kind of read this. <laughs> if, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, anybody who wants to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his orange jumpsuit, and come along. I mean, you're surrendering to him. Like, you're surrendering to him. He's going to his death. These guys that he's speaking to, all of them, the exception of Judas, who took his own life, they all would have their lives taken. John's the only, they tried to execute John, but it was a fail, it was a blotched attempt, and because of the superstition that he survived being boiled alive, he was sort of exiled to an island um, to die an old man. Um, this whole idea of following Jesus, saying, I'm going to take on my, like, you know, California Department of Corrections jumpsuit, and I'm going to follow him, my life is gone to me. 
This, does, this is, doesn't follow American Christianity. Um, Boyce says concerning this, he's a, he's a, 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 he has a great commentary on Matthew, and he says um, that the disciple that hearing these words of Jesus, they're, they're, they're essentially taking up the cross means accepting whatever God has uh, given us and then offering it back to him. Lord, you've given me everything. It's all yours. Whatever you see, seek to do with me, it's yours. It doesn't necessarily mean that every disciple is going to face this death, but I think that the the challenge that Jesus is asking is that every disciple of his is at least willing to say, Lord, like my life is yours. If this is how you would have it end, then that's how you'd have it end. But the, the issue is I want to do your will in my life, not be led by my own desires, my own passions. And he says, follow me. And to me, this is the thrust that we desire to follow after Jesus, that we um, we who are Christians desire to follow after our Lord, His example. And following Him, it may lead to the other things. But it's a, a present imperative. This is His ongoing action um, of following after Him daily, moment by moment. I think of Paul's words in Philippians 2.5 where Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. He says that as a Christian seeks to be like Christ, our aim needs to be that our attitude is in alignment with His, that He would, that, that, that through His grace, through His Spirit, that, that our hearts, our minds would be aligned with His will. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. And Paul, when he writes to the Spirit in Philippians, he says that our example as his followers should be that we should have that same attitude, that it's not about us. It's about him. Jesus was leading by example. He's speaking these words as he's six months out from his crucifixion. Um, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm uncomfortable by these words. Like, I'm challenged by these words. I'm not saying that this is like, oh, yeah, this is easy peasy, no, no big deal. Jesus' words are, are challenging. And Bo Boyce continues in his commentary, and he, he made me chuckle. Because he, he says what I think we should all be asking ourselves. When the cost of being a Christian is put in these terms, which is the teaching of Jesus Christ himself, any sane person ought to ask whether this is a good investment or not. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> it's like, ah, I don't know, Jesus. Like, why would any crazy, like, or sane person, crazy people, we can say, oh, yeah, that's what, that's a, that makes sense. The cost is high. Is what we get out of it worth what we put in it? Jesus seems to have been aware of that question, for he follows his demand for cross-buried and three strong incentives for his disciples uh, for doing just that. So he says to them, they're challenged. Remember, this is coming off the heels of their, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be executed. 
I'm going to die. I'm going to raise, I'm going to be raised on the third day. Peter says, uh, come with me, Jesus. I need to kind of correct you on this. Like, uh, uh, Lord, this is, it's bad PR what you're doing here. No, God forbid it that you die. And it's from that that Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow after me, you need to deny yourselves. You need to pick up your cross and you need to follow me. And he's like, yeah, that cost is high. Then Jesus is going to sort of give some supporting reasons why this is reasonable. He says, forever who wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, for, for simplicity and translation reasons, just as we go through um, verses 25 and 26 in the New American Standard, um, in verse 25, we see this word life. Uh, whoever wishes to save his life, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. So life is used there twice. If you go into verse 26, the word is used soul. In the Greek, it's the same word. And it, the word is suke, which is sort of, um, the, the literal explanation of this word is the soul, the part of the person that includes the personality with all its demands and goals. It's, it's essentially uh, the, the sum total of who you are is this word. So your flesh, your emotions, your mind, your, your, your spirit, everything about who you are is this word. It's the most precious thing that you have as you're born, as you're like just from a human perspective. It's, it's, it's intrinsic within us, apart from Christ, every, this idea of self-preservation. I think it's why, like, especially suicide is so hard for survivors to deal with. Like, how, how could an individual uh, do this? And I mean, that's not, not a part of anything that I'm trying to convey here, but that's pain. Suicide has touched people in my life. And, but, but the idea is, Jesus understands how valuable our lives are to us as individuals. And he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is, this is a total paradox. It, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's like saying if you want to go up, then you need to go down. It, it, it doesn't compute when I read this, in, in many ways, when I was in the, the SEAL teams, over the course of the 12 years, one thing that I always, I, or towards the end, or maybe midway through, that I started to notice is that we were always asked to do things that were sort of, by normal people's standards, were sort of crazy and dangerous, but they never seemed crazy or dangerous to me at the time. And as we were doing things, what, what, what I started to notice is that if an individual around you who was like a good operator suddenly started to have fears or worries about hurting themselves, like if they're suddenly in their mind, they, they, they're like, I'm worried about getting hurt, and they, their, their number one aim was to sort of preserve themselves so they wouldn't get hurt, it was almost like it became self-fulfilled prophecy that, that I can't tell you how many times that a guy would end up like, either fatally hurting himself or breaking a leg or something like just pretty catastrophic. And it's like, oh, it's just sort of like, and I realized like for me, that was part of the, hey, I know that I'm out of this game. I got to get out because I started to like be so worried about getting hurt. And it's like, 
when you're trying to like preserve your self-well-being, then what happens is you end up getting hurt because like the very thing that you're trying to do, you end up like, I see this in marriages. Like all they want is a happy marriage, but the way to do it, they're just going to fight it to the death. And it's like, well, that's not how you do it. Like, yeah. You gotta have to submit yourself to each other. Well, that's not what I want. I want my independence. It's like, okay, well, you can go with your plan, but it's not gonna work out for your good. God says this. It doesn't seem the way to joy, happiness, and peace within a marriage, but that's his plan. And here he says, if you want your life, the, the way to, to, to actually experience life is to lose it. But if you're trying to preserve your life, if you're going after everything in this world, for the sake of your self-preservation, you're not gonna, you're not gonna save your soul. In the last two weeks, I've been listening to a book. Um, I've, I've read it years ago, and now I'm listening to it with Grace and, and the family. Um, Ravi Zacharias is a brilliant man. Most of his writings I can't understand. He's like far too uh, intellectual for me, but a brilliant, brilliant man. But he has an autobiography that he kind of starts out with the pages like, oh, the publisher said that I need to keep this on the very lowest common denominator so that the people can understand. And I'm like, that's for me. And so we've been listening to this book, and it's about his, like, his, his testimony, his story. And this week, we covered a part where he talks about as a young believer, he was, he, well, he was more than a young believer, but he was now in seminary. He's starting to go up in, in the ranks, sort of thing, in, so to speak, in the Christian world um, as a great apologist, uh, defending the faith, faith uh, to, to scholars, and he'd been asked to go on this, this speaking tour uh, to, in Vietnam. Now, the year was like 1971. So there was kind of another thing happening in Vietnam during that time, like a major conflict. And so he spends his summer as a seminary student in Vietnam sharing the gospel in a bunch of different venues. Like, like the, there was no lines in the sand to who he'd share the gospel with. He's an Indian man. And... And so he tells a story that, that they're in the car, they're supposed to go to this place, and the driver who is their, like their, their national person says, hey, we're about to go through the most dangerous place in all of Vietnam. And he's like, why, like, why is he even telling me this? Like, well, why is he sharing this with me? Can't he like, tell us after we get through and say, hey, oh, by the way, we just went through the most dangerous place? And, and he said they started entering into this, this province, and, and all of a sudden, their car stops. It dies. And they're like, they're like, none of us are mechanical. We're like kicking the tires. We're like, the loose wires, we're trying to make sure they're still loose. The tight wires, we're making sure they're plugged in. And he's like, we're doing everything. And he's like, then we see this car drive by us. And we're like waving like, hey, stop, help us. But he's like, no right mind would stop anybody on the side of the road because of fear of like, that it was an ambush. And so then that car passes them, and he says, like, well, an hour later, all of a sudden, the car just started. And he's like, I, it, there, was, there was no reason why the car stopped or why it started. He's like, and then we, we continued our journey, and he's like, I went 30 minutes down the road, and that car that just flew by us was upside down. Everybody killed and destroyed in a landmine. And his point of sharing this, he's like, this was like a sobering moment in my life where I realized that the sovereignty of God's hand, that, that our time is appointed to us, and it was sort of this, this, this moment for him of like saying, you know what, I can trust God with my soul, with my life. I'm going to do what he wants. 
Because if I try to live my life in a way to sort of preserve myself, there's no guarantee of anything. Um, the safest place for me is to be in God's hand because God's my creator. He created me. He's numbered my days. He knows how long. And so if I want to truly experience life, I just need to walk in the wake of his will. The wake, for those of you that are not voting people, you know, you have a boat, there's a wake behind it. If you're there, it's safe. And, and so he's like, it was sobering. He's like, if God wants to take my life while I'm sleeping, he can. If God wants to preserve my life in a plane that's 30,000 feet in the air that blows up, he can save my life. Like, it's not. Um, and so I think what Jesus has pointed to them is like, I'm asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to, to, in your mind, surrender your life to me. The reason I'm asking you to do this is because ultimately I'm your creator. I'm the one who formed you. I'm the one who's given you life. I'm the one who knows what's best for you, so trusting me with your life is, is a good investment. And ultimately, in this place of giving our lives to our Creator, there's ultimate freedom there. Because you don't have to worry, you don't have to be paranoid about stuff. Like, it really breaks my heart. Like, just, it's, it's fresh on my brain, like, coming back from Israel. Like, how many Christians are so afraid to live for fear that, that their little world might implode? And it's like, guys, your world is in his hands. He can implode your world right here in Valley Center in the safety of your own home. And so if he's, he's leading you somewhere, don't allow fear to, like, stop you from living for him. He goes on to say, and he asked the greatest, the ultimate of all hyperboles. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Same word as the word life. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This reminds me of one of my favorite games. I don't play it anymore. When I left the team, so sort of the game died to me because people are different in the real world. <laughs> but one of my favorite games in the teams was the game, uh, how much to do this <laughs> kind of game. I don't know if there's an official name on it, but a group of guys, we'd be like on a, heel, on a helo pad, 200 feet up in the air, um, out at the sea on a, on a, you know, where the oil comes up. Hey, how much for you to jump off this thing right now? <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe five thousand dollars, maybe ten, and then so we'd have all you name it, stupid things like this, and every now and again it'd be like, hey, how much to jump off this oil platform? I don't know, five hundred bucks. We like, I'll pitch in twenty. I'll pitch in twenty. Hey, we got five hundred bucks. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the stupid things guys will do for like little things like this. Most of the time, the stuff was so outrageous that the cost was too high. But every now and again, some guy would lower his price just if it was a new guy. And we'd say, oh, we were just joking, man. We're not paying you that money. I'm sidetracked here. Okay. Um, Jesus asked the question. Like, like, if you could gain the whole world, like if you could have everything, would that be worth your soul? It's hyperbole. He's not saying that any human being can actually do this. Or, if the devil said, I'll give whatever you want, 
for your soul. How much would that cost? 50 bucks? 100 bucks? Ferrari? Nice house? Pretty wife? Some award in your sporting event? NFL player? Basketball player? I don't know. You name it. Like, what, 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 what is it? That's his question. He's flipping on, like, like, like there are two teams here. There's the evil one who prowls around like a lion, the scriptures tell us. There's, and then there's God. There's Christ, the Messiah who's fulfilled all of this prophecy. And he said, what? Like, is it worth it? Like, is it worth sacrificing your, your soul for a good job? For a while? Like, God may give you these things. But are you willing to sacrifice the most important thing you have, the condition of your soul for the things of this world? And this, this, the, the older I get, the, the faster I realize like this life is going. And I think I must have been tired yesterday. I was up at like four and I was out late and I had to go to this banquet. And I'm driving down the 76 at like sunset time. And it was like a movie, you know, like the sun was there, the sky was like golden. And it was like, you know, and you can see all the little flickery things in the sky, like dust or whatever. I just remember driving, having this moment, thinking, man, God's given me another day. Like, this is just beautiful. I feel like I'm running out of these days. <laughs> like, I feel like I have less of these ahead of me than I had behind me. And I better start appreciating these days. And how did I get here? <laughs> oh, yeah, because our life is so short. Like, in light of eternity, our life is like that. Solomon says it's like a fume. You know, we're having the seniors lunch, and I'm not trying to put him on a spot, but, but, but I don't care. Who, you talk to the oldest person that you know, and you say, hey, does life just seem like it's dragging on? Oh, it goes by like, I'm like a young person inside. What happened to my, my dad says all the time, he said, I look in the mirror, and I don't even know what happened to me. Because on the inside, I'm the same person, but on the outside, it's passing away. And Jesus is saying in the light of eternity, like, is it worth it? Jim Elliott, for those of you that don't know who Jim Elliott is, like, I think it was in the 50s, he was a young man that went with a group of missionaries um, down to Ecuador to reach the Aka people. Uh, these are a people who um, basically any outsider that went in there, they killed them. They were killing each other. They, 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 uh, one of the most violent people in, in the world. And they decided that they were going to go there to reach them. And, and Jim Elliott in his like, journal from college profound young man, like his writings, uh, I believe it's uh, The Shadow of the Almighty is the name of the book. And he had, it's just his journal about like things that God was teaching him. And one of his most famous quotes, you know, I'm sure as he um, faced opposition as a young man, like, why would you go to these people? Why would you do this? And it, one of his quotes is he says, I'm going to read it twice so that we can kind of take it in. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain, which he cannot lose. This is like a 20-year-old kid that wrote this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. The idea of giving up your life, like you can't, you can't keep your, like you, you are not in control of your life. I don't care if you drink bottled water. Like you're not going to extend your life if God doesn't want your life extended. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. Our, our souls with our creator, you can't lose that in Christ. There is nothing more valuable to you 
than the final disposition of your soul. And I, and I strike that. I want to sound like very courtish. That's actually my notes. I, uh, because I was writing that, I said, the final disposition of your soul. And I caught myself and I started thinking of my soul like it's then, like it's when I die. But the reality is it's now, it's present tense. There's no greater thing than you have than the disposition of your soul with God right now. It's all you have is right now. You don't even have yesterday. You don't have tomorrow. You have right now. And God wants to give us life now in Christ, our soul, that we would be placed in Him, secure, washed new, cleansed. And then Jesus goes on to say future. So what He's about to say in verse 27 is a future prophecy. So there's two prophecies in this whole context. For us, one of them we look back that has been fulfilled. This one, we're still looking future. This one hasn't happened yet. So the first one is Jesus says six months before his death, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed at the hands of the scribes and the elders and and I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again. We look back to that. That's happened. There's all sorts of evidence. I mean, grab a case for Christ The evidence is there supporting what happened. But then he goes on to say, for the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is going to come in the glory of his Father with angels. So now he speaks of the second coming, which is what I think the disciples had in their mind. They looked beyond the death, burial, and resurrection to to this prophecy that's in the Old Testament, that that the Messiah is going to come with his iron fist to reign and to rule He says, the the Son of Man, the Messiah is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is a sobering statement. And I think that this is a statement that I think, like, in the Christian mind, can be difficult. Because salvation is a gift of God. There, there's, there's, there's no undermining of grace. There's no undermining of, of your relationship with God is not contingent on your works. Your relationship on God is contingent on the cross and how you handle the cross. We're told if you're believed, if you believe, if I'm merging words, if you believe in the cross, if you believe in the gospel that Jesus died for you, we're told that you're sealed by the Spirit, you're safe, you're secure for eternity, period. But then, not to confuse that, that doesn't negate that there's a responsibility for the actions of our lives. So salvation's offered as a gift, but it's not at the exclusion of accountability for our actions. Um, a couple famous verses that everybody knows. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I think every Awana kid knows this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not, ju- not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, period. You're, you're not saved by works. It's by faith. It's through God's grace that we stand redeemed. However, there's a verse 10 that follows. Paul's made his case that you're, you're saved by faith, period, or by, by grace through faith. But then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, poema. It's like this beautiful poem that God is, God is the, the ultimate craftsman who's created you for a purpose. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, that he's created you to serve a purpose. You have a role if you're a Christian. You, you, I mean, everybody has a role, a purpose. Like God is not, But if you're a Christian, God, he's gifted you, he's called you, he's placed you into the body of Christ. Uh, you're needed in the local church to, to serve out your, the gift that he's given you. It's a part of your growing, your maturing, and, and, and walking out this life that he's given us. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses, um, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He speaks of the future day of judgment. He says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. There's the work word again. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. I want to pause there, but I'm going to come back. Don't lose your place. So, so Paul says, hey, at the end of your life, we're going to stand before Christ. He's going to examine our life in Christ, sort of our, our works, there are things that we will have done in our life that are built upon Christ, that are good, that are um, pleasing to the Lord, and those things will remain. Everything else will be burned away. That's good news. And he goes on and he says, um, if any man's work is burned up, so speaking of things that have been burned up, he will suffer loss. So it could be, that you came to Christ and there's nothing else good in your life and for their whole life, there's not one little thing. He goes on to say, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire, that the individual, that the, the work of the cross was sufficient, even if nothing else survived. I, and I always think of um, that one movie, um, Back in Time or whatever, was it? Uh, Back to the Future. Where the guy comes singing out and his hair's all smoky. I kind of feel like that's how, like, I, like, maybe I'll enter into heaven or some of us wonder. And I'm like, I made it. <laughs> Nothing else to laugh. You know? And so he's pointed to them, like, listen, your, your life, your actions, this matters. And then he goes on to say, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of the Man coming in heaven. And then they're going to move on. The next passage, we're going to go uh, six days later, what I think Jesus is speaking of, that Peter, James, and John, they're going to stand there on Mount Horeb, I believe, and they're going to see Jesus transfigure himself where his glory will be revealed. Powerful stuff. So what I'm going to end with is I do think that deciding to follow Christ, there is no greater decision that you can make in your life. I'm encouraged that the scripture that Jesus calls an individual to examine, to question, to investigate. I don't, I don't really believe in just blind faith, like, oh, you just got to take it by faith. No, like, that's evolution. There's like, I don't have time to go into the, I think it takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God and the evidences that Christ has left behind. And I think that giving to receive Christ, it means that you're also offering your life to him. Like two people that are standing there at the altar to get married, and one says, yeah, I'm going to give you everything that I have. Then one says, I'll take the fire insurance, thanks. Let's do this. Can you? What kind of marriage? That's not like, 
Christ has given everything for us. It's beautiful. All to him I owe. I'm going to end with some words of Paul in Galatians chapter 2.20, which I think Paul, this man who was a great persecutor of the church, he came to know the risen Christ. From the risen Christ, he began to understand his cross. Then he knew his sufferings. If you follow Paul, like I've been, like Ravi Zacharias says, if you follow Paul's explanation of the gospel, he goes in reverse order because that's the order in which he came to know Christ. It's sort of fascinating to me. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. <clears throat> so Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Father, I do thank you and praise you that Jesus came to earth. Lord, I thank you that he lived a perfect life, that he lived without sin. Lord, that he set the example for us. Lord, I thank you that he made a way um, by the cross, Lord, that we could come into this relationship with you. And Lord, it's so easy to come to the gospel um, sort of with the intention of, of wondering what's in it for me and what do I get out of it and that there's no cost and we just want the free gift. And, and Lord, we thank you that your grace um, gives eternal life based on this sort of grace. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these words of Christ, that you would, Lord, help us to examine our own lives um, and the call of Christ to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him. Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to you, to your grace, Lord, and love, that we would, out of love, out of gratitude, that we would respond by really giving you all because there's really no other place for us to go. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your graciousness, and your mercy towards us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.